would like to invite you to turn in a copy of the scriptures to the book of Acts, chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. And I'm going to read through chapter 5, verse 11. When you got it, say, I got it. All right, here we go. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But... A man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold... Was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart and have not lied to man but to God? When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up, carried him out, buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I want to talk to you this morning on the topic of inside-out spirituality. Inside-out spirituality. And I want to contrast that with a fake... uh, outside-oriented spirituality. So let's pray and let's ask God for His help as we dive into these, these words. Father, we do pray that You would help us this morning. We believe that this is Your inspired, inerrant Word for us today. It is true, it is powerful, it is living, able to convict us, 
encourage us, rebuke us. We pray that you would do that for us this morning. I pray that you would help me to communicate with clarity the truthfulness of your word, that I would speak not my own ideas, but your ideas. And I pray, God, that you would help us have hearts that are open, ready to receive your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me begin with somewhat of a parable. There was a great ship that sailed the ocean for four decades. And it was about to go out for its final cruise. The mechanics were checking out the ship, inspecting it, and they discovered that the four smokestacks on this great ship had all deteriorated. deteriorated. The, the steel that uh, formed the smokestacks was gone. It had completely corroded, and all that was left was 30 coats of paint. So they brought this terrible news to the captain, and they said that the steel is gone, and you're looking at smokestacks made of 30 coats of paint. And the captain looked, and he said, well, they look good. The mechanic said, yeah, they do look good, but there's nothing on the inside. The captain said, it doesn't matter what's on the inside. They look good. Let's go to sea. I wonder what is on the inside. I wonder if we look good on the outside. But church, what is on the inside? As you present this glossy veneer to the world, does it matter what's underneath? As you focus on a positive social media presence, does it really matter what your offline reality looks like? As you present a positive public life, does your private life matter? As you focus on external actions, do your dark secrets matter? God's Word is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. We are living in an era in which Christians, celebrities, well-known believers, defenders of the faith are exposed as hypocrites. Christian leaders who have become obsessed with their internet presence, who profess godliness, yet in secret live lives filled with alcoholism and pride, who confess the Orthodox Christian faith, but privately are involved in sexual scandals. I wonder if this cultural skepticism of the idea of truth has invaded the church. You know what I'm talking about? Like in the culture, they say truth is relevant. In the world, they say, look, truth is whatever you make of it. I wonder how many of us are tempted to believe that truth is whatever I want to make of it. I wonder if we believe that the public image of who we are is actually true regardless of 
the secrets we carry. I wonder if we have come to believe that as long as people think highly of me, then it doesn't really matter what is true. In the first church, what we see is that they were not changed from the outside in, but their change came from the inside out. It was first an internal transformation that then moved outward. Let me show you what I mean. First of all, their fellowship was inside out. Their fellowship was inside out. If, if you look in verses 32 through the end of the chapter, we see this beautiful picture. This is how, this is how our passage begins. It starts with a beautiful picture of fellowship. And right there in verse 32, it says that the full number of those, that would be about 5,000 people, remember. 5,000 believers who have now come together since the day of Pentecost. It says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That means they were united. You know, they say friends uh, finish each other's sentences. That's the same kind of sentiment here, that they are of one mind, one heart, one soul. One spirit was an ancient nickname for deep friendship in which we, like, we just get each other. We, we, we share with one another. We love one another. We walk together. There's unity and there's friendship and fellowship. So the, the, this full number, all 5,000 of them were united as one body. All right, that's internal and then external, so it goes inside out. As a result of that, it says no one had uh, uh, said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. That word common is the word koina. It sounds a lot like the word koinonia, right? Which is the Greek word for fellowship. We saw that word in Acts chapter 2. They come together as a koinonia, and they koina. They share everything. They hold all things in common. The word share itself in the Greek is koinoneo, meaning share, uh, fellowship, uh, all things in common, all have the root word. They share the root word. They all flow from the same idea. I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I will belabor the point just a little bit longer, and that is this, that fellowship is not just simply hanging out. But fellowship is this coming together as one community, and what happens here is that the things that they own, they, they act like they don't even own these things, and, and they share with each other. Now, this is not a ban on private ownership. Later on in Acts chapter 12, we see that Mary, who was part of the Jerusalem church, actually owned her own home. So it's not as if they don't literally own anything, but it's as if they don't see themselves as owning anything. Uh, they see themselves as stewards of all that they have. Uh, and, and so then, what they do is they, they hold everything in common. There's this willing nature to this. They are willingly sharing what they have with each other. But here's the point I'm chasing at is it begins where? It begins in the heart. 
It begins in the inward reality of being of one heart and one spirit, and that happens through what we saw in Acts chapter 2, the power of, come on, the Holy Spirit. The heart, then, flows into fellowship. Uh, Fellowship, you could say, begins in the heart, and it extends to our hands. So their fellowship then was what? It was inside out. Now, secondly, I want to point this out, that the change that occurred in them also happened in an inside-out fashion. Their change was inside-out. Look at verse 33. It says, With great power, the apostles were giving testimony giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them. That word power is not to reference the power in their preaching voice, but the power of the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit takes what they say and applies it to the hearts of God's people. And so what they're doing is they're proclaiming testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. We assume that what they're doing is probably going through the books of the Bible. They're preaching uh, all that they have, and they're showing how Christ is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. This is just simply good gospel preaching. Now, my point is, is that the fountainhead, and it's been said that preaching is the fountainhead of the local church, and I think that's right, the fountainhead of their change was not just simply how-to messages or reading a couple books or moralistic ideas, but it was good gospel preaching. They centered themselves around the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, if verse 32 We could think of verse 32 as kind of an overview of the rest of the passage. Verse 33 begins the details of how that came about. So how does this utter oneness, this fellowship come about? I think what it's saying in verse 33 is that it begins with the preaching of the Word. The change happens, not outside, in, but the change happens inside out. That's why we need preaching. And look, you might think I'm biased because I tend to do most of the preaching around here, but you need to listen to the preaching. (laughs) All right? I can only say that because I think I'm preaching God's Word and not my ideas. All right? You know, one of the distractions are uh, for us is our phones. I'm going to get real practical. Sometimes I look at our church and I see people like this, and then I wonder why I'm not hearing any amens. All right? Uh, if you wonder, you know, why am I not seeing the transformation in my life? It could be. I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying it could be that you never actually listen to God's Word preached and taught. Think about that. So it, it, it cha- the, it, the change comes from hearing and receiving God's Word. It changes us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, then, and that, that births beautiful fellowship. Are you tracking with me so far? Also, third now, we see the generosity in the church. All right, Their generosity came inside out. We see this in verse 34 and 35, detailed. So this is how it happened. This is what the generosity actually looked like. This is what they were doing. Look at verse 34. It says, uh, there was not a needy person among them. 
That word needy is, is uh, to say that no one had any lack. Uh, no one lacked the basic necessities of life. They may not have had the latest uh, pair of J's or the nicest television, but at least they had food, warm clothing, uh, a roof over their head, heat in the wintertime. Nobody lacked in the church. All needs were met. How? How did that happen? It says, for, meaning let me tell you how, as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and, uh, and distributed, they distributed it to any uh, as they had need. So the picture of what was happening was, was that those who did have extra resources in the church were selling their lands. They were selling the vacation home. They were selling the little property. They, they, were, they were selling the extra car. They were selling everything that they did not need for their life. They were selling it and then taking that cash and they were putting it at the apostles' feet in an undesignated fashion, not telling them where this donation is to go, but basically trusting the, the apostles, in this case, to distribute the uh, resources to meet the needs of all in the church. Now, this is quite phenomenal. It's beautiful. And as, as a matter of fact, I would say this, we've never seen anything like this in the history of the whole Bible. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy, Chapter 15, verse 4, God did say that Israel ought to be a place where all needs are met. When they get into the land, there is enough in the land to feed everybody. God has provided enough for all needs to be met. And so Israel was to live them uh, in such a way of justice and righteousness so that all needs would be met. Now, of course, that never actually happened. In, in Israel, what we see here is as Jesus comes, dies, buries, raises again, the Holy Spirit descends upon the church, he forms a church, immediately the picture is, is this, an utter love, fellowship, oneness, unity, as they're sharing with each other, as, as they're working together, ministering together to make sure that all of the needs in the church are met. And you know, one thing I think we can take away from this too is, is as American individualists, sometimes we think of ourselves as just an, I'm, I'm my own individual doing my own thing. And we think of the church as a collection of individuals doing their own ministries. But really what we see in the, in the first church is that they weren't, uh, this wasn't like individual to individual. This was individuals to the koinonia, and then the koinonia serving together as a church. And it was truly, truly, truly remarkable. Yet, I need to say this, it's also attainable. This isn't something that is so ridiculous that, you know, we would have to, like, put guns to people's heads to actually live out. This is actually very attainable. Just simply don't cling to what you own. If you have something extra, give it away. Meet needs. Create a res resources. Create a, create a, a, a storehouse of, of, of opportunities and goods that can be used to meet the needs of those who might lack within the church. It's attainable. And I would say this, too, is don't just simply look at the rich. You know, don't wait until you have plenty to be generous. 
If you're not generous with the little bit that God's given you, I guarantee you, you will not be generous with the lot of bit that you hope to get one day. Don't wait until you have plenty to be generous. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul commended the Macedonian Christians because they gave not out of their riches, but they gave out of their poverty. Jesus commended the woman who dropped in two mites, two pennies, into the offering plate. And he said, Jesus says that this woman gave more than all of Israel because she did not give out of her riches, but out of her poverty. See, the, the issue, church, is this. It's an issue of the heart. It's not just an issue of the hands. It's not just what it looks like, but it's, it's the question, what is the disposition of your heart? It, on the inside, do you have genuine faith? And then we can ask the question, does that genuine faith extend to the hands? Basel of Caesarea, he lived during a famine in the year 368, and he preached a series of sermons during this famine. During the famine, Basel noticed that there were so many people that were starving uh, to death, and then there were others, Christians, who had storehouses of grain, of goods. And so Basel preaches a series of sermons, and I'm actually currently reading the series of sermons that he preached in the year 368. And he's challenging the Christians to share. In one sermon, Basil says, he says, give to the needy today what rots tomorrow. He says the worst kind of avarice, which means like an extreme form of greed. The worst kind of avarice is to not even share perishable goods with those in need. Meaning like, how sad is it to ignore the hunger pains of those within your community, within your church, while your milk spoils in the refrigerator and while leftovers are thrown in the trash can. And you might say, well, the extra belongs to me. That's my food. That's my milk that I'm allowing to spoil. Basil goes on and he says, what did you bring into this life? For where did you receive it? You, and so you might say, well, well, uh, I've, I've, I've got gifts, I've got talents, I've got an education, I worked hard for this. Let's go all the way back. Where did you get your gifts and talents from? What did you do to earn those? I think you were born with those things. You did absolutely nothing. They were a gift. Did you create the opportunities for yourself? All of the things that led to where you can make some money today, is that really because you're such a great individual and you've been able to attain and acquire all of these things on your own? Or if we take it all the way back, do we see that our own very life is a gift from God? Everything that we have is given to us from God, and the Bible says that we are then stewards of everything. Not steward the name, but steward the concept. Meaning, I'm taking care of something that doesn't belong to me. Ultimately, everything that I have belongs to God. And God owns a people. So then, whose are they? 
I can claim none of it. That's the point. I cannot hoard any gift from God. I am I, called to be a steward of all things. Basel says that the problem with the greedy is that they seize common goods before others have the opportunity. These common goods would be like properties and houses. They seize common goods before others have the opportunity as their own right. So then Pastor Basel challenged his flock. And he says, what if we all took only what was necessary to satisfy our own needs and giving the rest to those who lack? He goes on to simply say this, no one would be in need. I think that's the picture of what's happening here in the early church. The picture is very simple. It seems like those who uh, have extra, take that extra and put it into a common plot pot in the koinonia, and through that, all of the needs within the church are met. It's, it's the overflow of fellowship. It's, it's true fellowship. It's true togetherness, uh, oneness. It's friendship. It's family. This is no different than the way we should be with our own friends and families. Now we do this with the church. Meaning this, church, true fellowship begins in the heart but it extends to the hands. Bible teaching ought to lead to lives of sharing. Care for God ought to lead to concern for the poor. Think of Christ Himself. Our redemption was not an intellectual experiment. Yes, it was first in the mind of God, but it didn't stay in the mind of God. The Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Are you tracking with me? Like Jesus actually came to purchase our redemption on the cross. Meaning all of the goodness of what we hear preached and what we study in the Word ought to flow into holy living. Now, all of that is my introduction for my sermon. My sermon... All right, my introduction is entitled Inside Out. All right, check this out. My sermon is entitled Fake Spirituality. I just, I just faked you out right there, all right? I don't care what you call my sermon. But here's, here's what I want to try to get at, though, is that all of that becomes a preface for the Ananias and Sapphira story. Because what happens is we see this radical generosity being lived out. We see this beautiful fellowship, and then you find some frauds who say, I want the accolades of generosity without the action of generosity. So, let's move into the next section here. There are two real estate stories. The first one is of a man named Joseph. His nickname is Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He's a Levite from the priest clan. He has a property, and he sells it. And it says in, uh, in verse 30, 32 that he, uh, uh, that he brings, uh, or verse 37, that he brings the money and he, and he lays the money at the apostles' feet. That was the custom of uh, donating it to the community. Now, the very next chapter and verse starts with a but. Like sometimes, you've you got to remember that like chapter divisions are not part of the original language and sometimes they don't help us track the flow of the story. 
In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, but, meaning in contrast to Barnabas, but there was another man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. They also sold a property. So Ananias and Sapphira evidently see the Joseph thing go down. They see Barnabas sell the property. They see him get all the accolades likely. They probably see him get a bunch of praise from the people. And they say, we want to look spiritual like that. We want that kind of accolades. But we don't want the action. We want the look without the love. We want the praise of man more than we want the praise of God. And so what do they do in verse 2? It says, with his wife's knowledge, so they're working together in this scheme, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Peter, we don't know how, but it's certainly some revelation from the Holy Spirit. Peter uh, discerns that they are lying. And so Peter immediately addresses Ananias, not even so much with a question about whether you're lying, but a question on why you're lying to the Holy Spirit. He, it says, Peter says, uh, Ananias, why, why is, how has Satan filled your heart? How have you been so duped to try to lie? Oh, not to man, not to, not to Peter, but to lie to the Holy Spirit, to believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't see the inner recesses of the heart. To believe that the Holy Spirit only sees your external actions, only sees what you present to the world, but the Holy Spirit doesn't actually see what's really going on in your life. How is it that you have been so deceived to believe that you can lie to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, it says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've committed this deed in the heart, that your heart? You've not lied to man, but you've lied to God. Now at this point, Ananias drops dead. They, they check his pulse. They wrap him up. They carry him out. Three hours later, his wife comes in. She, ha- she knows nothing of what's happened. And Peter now asks Sapphira, what happened? Did you, did you sell the land for the amount of money that was just brought to us? And she says, yes, for so much. Peter then again asks Sapphira the same question he asks Her husband, just in a slightly different way, he says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord, to to test Him? You know that you are presenting to the world something false. It's not who you really are. How is it that you have tested the Spirit of God? And immediately she falls dead herself. They carry her out. They bury her next to her husband. And it says that great fear came upon the whole church, upon all who heard these things. A few things to note. Number one, Ananias and Sapphira were not required to sell the property. 
There wasn't like a require, there wasn't a rule that said everybody's got to sell and bring everything to us. That wasn't their problem. As a matter of fact, they weren't even required to give 100% of the sale of the property. They certainly could have given whatever amount they wanted to. We know that because in verse 4, Peter says to them that while you owned it, it was, it was up to your discretion. You, you could have done whatever you wanted to do with the property. If you want to keep the property, keep the property. If you want to keep the extra car, just keep the extra car. It's at your disposal. Nobody's requiring anything of you. That's what he's saying. It wasn't required. Well, then what was the issue? The issue isn't that they didn't give 100%. The issue isn't that they, uh, uh, that they even kept some back. The issue is that they broke the ninth commandment, which is do not lie. They lied. Meaning they were presenting a falsehood. They were presenting themselves as something that they were not. And a word that we use for this church is hypocrites. Now, one thing that's very interesting and I love about this passage is that we have this idyllic picture of the early church where they're sharing everything and there's love and there's fellowship or not. There's also hypocrites in the early church. We know that uh, Luke is using hyperbole at the very beginning there where he says that they... Uh, that that all believed, all who believed were in one spirit. Uh, meaning, not all. There were actually at least two that were hypocrites. It tells us that there's hypocrites in the church. You know, I can't tell you how many times over the years I've heard somebody say, I just want the Acts 2 kind of church. I just want an Acts 4 kind of church. Well, we've got to understand that as beautiful as that picture was, first of all, it did not last long in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church quickly uh, sort of disbanded and became very poor and they became reliant on other churches to even survive. And the churches that were funding the Jerusalem church were churches such as Corinth. That's problematic. Talk about hypocrites. You know, the apostle Paul, John, and James all deal with greed in the letters that they write to the churches. The fact that they're overlooking one another, not loving each other. Meaning if you're in a church with hypocrites where, where, where unity is something that is very difficult to strive for, welcome to God's true church. <laughs> that is the New Testament church. Now that doesn't mean though that God's cool with it. We actually see here, one, it's normal, but two, we see what God thinks of hypocrites. God immediately takes Ananias and Sapphira out of this world. Uh, some people might say that it's harsh. Some people read this and th they think, man, God is being so harsh here. How can God be so harsh? This is like somebody who says they tithe. They give 10% to the church, but they actually only give 6% to the church. <laughs> Boom, you're dead. Doesn't that feel harsh to you? I mean, people probably do that all the time. And I would just simply say this. It's not harsh, but it is unique. Uh, meaning, this isn't clearly what God normally does. God is not normally killing us for our hypocrisy. Otherwise, probably half our church would drop dead. 
God is moving and acts in very unique ways. And as much as He's healing and performing, performing miracles, also He is performing really crazy excommunications. Again, when someone says, man, I just want to see acts. I want to, I want to see acts lived out in the church. I'm sort of like, do you? Like all of it? Like the hypocrites die? That part too? I think it's unique. There's something unique here that God is doing to show us that the church must be pure. That hypocrisy cannot be put up with. That it's pure, uh, uh, that it's, it, it's pure evil. It is driven by the devil. And that it can't exist in the church. Number three, third thing I want to point out is that the main character here is not Peter. It's not Peter that kills Ananias and Sapphira. Who is the main character in the story? The story is bracketed by the Holy Spirit. In verse 32, we see that they're preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit. In verses 12 through 16, we see the Holy Spirit is moving in power. We see that they lied not to man, but to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the main character. The point is this, is that they've tested the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit discerns the heart. He knows your secrets. You cannot fake the Holy Spirit. That's the point of the story. So, here's a lesson for us, church. Do not live for the favor of man but live for the favor of God. Do not live for the applause of man, but live for the reward of God. Do not live before the eyes of man, but live before the eyes of God. We are always going to be tempted to present a more pious and a more spiritual uh, uh, veneer of who we are to the world than what we actually are. We're always going to be tempted to have that dark side of us, kind of like the moon. You see the bright, shiny side, but you know there's a dark side on the other other end. Hidden sins. A whole hidden life. And we just hope that it's never discovered. And as long as it's not discovered, maybe it's not even true. What's truth? What is truth, Pilate said? The Holy Spirit knows what's true. He knows what's true. Live before God, not man. Religious folks focus on the external outward appearances. And they present themselves as so pious. They present themselves as so loving and so generous. But the inward reality is the problem with the hypocrite. Now those who have given up on religion, they look at all of that and they say, oh, I could never be that. They read Acts 4 and they say, I could never have this kind of love. I could never have this kind of care for other people, for the poor, uh, for the church. I could never live with that kind of fellowship. I could never have those external actions. And so therefore, 
religion is not for me. The irony is this, is both the hypocrite and the person who's given up on religion are both focusing on what? The external. The outward appearance. But see, the Christian says it's not about the outward appearance. It's not about the external. It's not about the things that I do with my hands. It's not about how much money I give away. It's not about how generous I can possibly be. The Christian says that without Jesus, I would only have fake fellowship. Because what it's about is Jesus. The Christian says that I have been changed not from the outside in, but I've been changed from the inside out. You've got these uh, smokestacks filled with nothing but 30 coats of paint. What do they need? They don't need another layer of paint. There's no amount of makeup that can make this face beautiful. What they need is new steel. They need a transformation that takes place from the inside out. And in, the, in, in theology, we call that the doctrine of regeneration. A transformation that the Holy Spirit does to our hearts. Washes out the inside of the cup. And Jesus says if the inside of the cup is washed, the outside becomes clean as well. So where do we find then this inside-out transformation? Oh, church, it's, it's looking to Him. It's looking to Jesus, who, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He had all of the wonders of heaven. He had the riches of, of, of glory. He had all of the delights of God. Yet, He made Himself of no reputation, took on the form of a servant, and He became obedient even to death. Where does true spirituality come from? It comes from Him who picked me up, turned me around, and set my feet on solid ground. He gave His all so that I might be saved. My story then depends on His story of generosity. What does the Bible say? For God so loved the world that He... The wages of sin is death, but the... For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to give His life as a ransom for many. It is all about what He gave to me, the needy, the poor, the broken, the wretch. He willingly lived a life of perfect obedience. He willingly was condemned. He willingly went to the, uh, 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 to the cross of Calvary and died for my sin guilt. But three days later, He rose from the dead. And He's coming again. What was it that, that led this first church to this kind of love, to this kind of action, to this kind of koinonia, this fellowship that they had with one another? It wasn't focusing on external actions. It wasn't moralistic teaching. It wasn't uh, a hypocritical picture. It wasn't presenting 
a, a lying act of false piety. What was it? It was an inside-out transformation. They met Jesus. The Spirit woke them up, and Jesus became their treasure. And where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You see, when Jesus is your treasure, you can share worldly goods because they're not your treasure. When Jesus is your treasure, you can even lose comfort in this world because your treasure is in heaven. How could the Macedonian Christians give out of their poverty? It's because they had a treasure that you don't know about. How could the woman give two mites? It's because she had a treasure that you don't know about. My treasure is in heaven. And where your treasure is there, your heart is also. So let's celebrate the unity we have in Christ. Amen? One heart, one spirit. And church, let's look like it. Let's look like the unified, loving church that we are because of Him who's changed us from the inside out. Amen? Father, we ask that You would bless us in this Word, that You would take these things, seal them in our hearts, and do a work of transformation in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.